0: This holiday season, you can give the gift of promoting liberty by supporting the Cato Daily Podcast on behalf of a friend or family member. If you give $500 on behalf of that friend or loved one, we'll send a replica 1776 Continental dollar and a signed copy of David Bowes' up-to-date statement on libertarianism, The Libertarian Mind. We don't take money from the government, and the vast majority of Cato's support comes from individuals like you. Give the gift of liberty this holiday season and visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to learn more. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 4th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. With more nuclear weapons testing, North Korea says it is quickly approaching the point at which it could hit most or all of the United States with an ICBM. In one sense, we've been here before with the Soviet Union and China. In another sense, this is very new and very troubling. Cato Institute senior fellow Doug Bandow discusses where we are now. To what extent does North Korea's uh, missile test, they announced that they have completed their nuclear program, what difference does that make? Well, in practice, it makes not much difference. What they've
1: shown is they continue to make progress, and we can expect they are going to, at some point, have an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of targeting American cities. They aren't there yet, but it shows that we're going to face that at some point. And what they said might indicate they're in a position now where they're willing to talk on the theory that they're claiming to have finished their deterrent. And now that they feel comfortable, we don't know, but we certainly should explore that.
0: All right. So where are we hearing the, I guess, least grounded talk about um, the the threat that North Korea poses right now?
1: Well, we get that from a lot of Americans who are kind of pushing – a much more vigorous, shall we say, or a much more hawkish perspective. I mean, a uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, for example, who keeps telling us that the president plans on war unless that we're able to stop the North Koreans from building an ICBM we had McMaster on, uh, you know, over the weekend talking about how, well, you know, we think uh, Kim Jong Un is rational, but we don't think he's getting good advice, which is an interesting comment to come from a Trump advisor, of course. So we're seeing really pushed from, you know, the president's side as well as some of those kind of among Republicans who seem bent on war. Every test, you know, they kind of use and they hype it up. It's bad news from an American standpoint, but it doesn't change the current, you know, p- equation in terms of the North is not yet capable of targeting American cities, so we shouldn't talk as if it is.
0: Uh, some of the some of the talk that I have heard, and I I forget exactly from whom, but the, it is couched within either, look, we're going to have some sort of horrific travesty in um, South Korea, or. Uh, and that, that is if the United States decides to go to war. And if we don't do that, we live under this threat. And and those are two choices that for for whatever reason seem uh, – they both seem awful.
1: Well, neither choice is good. I think the difference is if we l- use military action of almost any kind, we're almost certain to start another Korean War. In the last Korean War, we you, know, you had three or four million people die. This is a war in which we presume the North has the ability to drop missiles with chemical weapons, biological weapons, and possibly nuclear weapons on Seoul, on Tokyo, on Guam, Okinawa. So if you start thinking about the consequences, any kind of war we know will be awful. You have to set against that the fact, well, are we prepared to live with a world in which we have to deter and contain an evil regime? And the answer is, well, we did that for decades. I mean, no one wanted Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union to have nuclear weapons. No one wanted Mao Zedong's China to have nuclear weapons, and they did. And we correctly decided we could contain and deter that threat. We didn't go to war with both of them. And I think that's a lesson that we should take today. We're dealing with bad options, but the idea of starting a war is really the far worse option.
0: What are, what are the possibilities of changing the attitude of the, the leadership in North Korea toward the United States? It seems as if the, that the United States is the great enemy and uh, will always be so.
1: Well, the North Koreans talk about America's hostile policy. The challenge here, of course, is anything the North says we should take with a few grains of salt. Nevertheless, it certainly fits with reality. These are not stupid people. You know, they recognize America's enormous military power, and they saw that the United States is willing to commit regime change, including in Libya, where the Libyan government actually gave up nukes, its nuclear program gave up its missile program. So I like to tell people that uh, the North Korean situation shows even paranoids have enemies. They're certainly not going to change that view as long as they perceive the U.S. is a great threat to them. So the starting point in my mind is to simply talk to them, get a sense in terms of what they claim to want, where they stand, and to the extent you could start moving on some issues like a peace treaty, you know, maybe you could change their attitudes. I'm not going to hold my breath on that, but it's a better, you know, strategy than to keep threatening them because every time we threaten war, we build the case for them to have nuclear weapons.
0: How did we do it with China, for example?
1: Well, what we did with China is we actually debated whether or not we should attack them. This is an issue that went up to the Johnson administration. People like William F. Buckley at National Review, his brother who was then in the U.S. Senate, James Buckley, and others were advocating that the United States preemptively or preventively take out Chinese uh, nuclear facilities. You know, it's very hard to know how that would have worked out, but we almost certainly would have had a far more hostile, far more paranoid. China, one working much more closely with the Soviet Union, and one that probably would have eventually gotten nuclear weapons anyway. So what we chose was to deter them. We had missiles that could defend us. We had missiles that, or that could you know, destroy them if they attacked us. And what we did over time eventually was to open a relationship. Richard Nixon's great strategic victory, I think, and this is just a few years after we were debating going to war with China— was if we opened a relationship, we could work with them against the Soviet Union. That worked very well. So I think, again, if you look in history, history tells us that threatening war typically doesn't work nearly as well as trying to change the relationship, never forgetting it's a bad regime, just like the North Korean regime. But still, we can live with bad regimes if we have the right strategy.
0: Uh, In the Carter and Reagan years, you worked in the Reagan administration. We signed a lot of nuclear treaties, uh, is there any sense that we could get something like that with North Korea and believe that it was uh, credible?
1: Well, we'd certainly have to have intrusive inspections. The question is, would they agree to that? I don't know. But we won't know, frankly, unless we talk to them. I mean, one of the possibilities is to accept we aren't going to get rid of nuclear weapons from the North, but maybe we could cap, you know, their program. I tell people today, you know, some of the estimates are they might have 20 nuclear weapons or so. We could live with a North Korea that has a stable arsenal of 20 nuclear weapons. If the alternative is to be stuck with a North Korean regime that has an arsenal of, say, 100 nuclear weapons and growing, and that's a number which Rand Corporation and others have thrown out as something that they might achieve in the next few years, I'd go with the 20 nuclear weapons. Bad option but far better than imagining them with essentially an arsenal the size of China's, Pakistan's, or India's. Then you're talking about a very different game. This does require that we engage them. It's silly not to talk to people where you feel threatened – Imagine if during the Cold War, we didn't have diplomatic relations and a means of talking with the Soviet Union. Imagine a Cuban Missile Crisis without any communication directly between the two capitals. I mean, it shows how important it is, I think, to have that channel of communication.
0: Um, Some of the talk uh, reminds me of the run-up to Iraq, sadly. Do you get that sense?
1: Well, that's certainly the scary thing here is a lot of the same people are out there, very hawkish, demanding action, saying we must be tough, using a lot of the same rhetoric. You know, my hope is that we've learned something. On the other hand, what the Iraq crisis showed us was that presidents can gin up the atmosphere. They can give a threatening speech, you know, and they can get the American people behind them, at least initially, and that could be repeated. So I think it's very dangerous. My hope is that the president, at the end of the day, will recognize the costs, and I do think someone like Defense Secretary Mattis, who's been in war, who understands what it means, is one who's going to be, in this case at least, kind of a reasonable influence, somebody to say, wait a minute, rethink this, but that's right. If we look back, at it, it's not that many years ago when we had another president drag America into a war, one of which pretty quickly showed how bad it was this one i think it would be almost instantly if we attack the north and they respond the response is going to be devastating and bloody we will win that war but the consequences especially to south korea but throughout that region is going to be awful
0: what has uh defense secretary mattis said so far
1: So far, Secretary Mattis has emphasized that diplomacy is needed. He's emphasized that it's a matter of diplomacy. Diplomacy is still trying to work. You know, he sounds, frankly, an awful lot like Secretary Tillerson. They've worked well together, and it's obvious if he's told, come up with a military plan, he will do that. On the other hand, he also understands we don't want to have to use that military plan. So Mattis so
0: far, at least in his public statements, appears to have been very responsible. Doug Bandow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. This holiday season, support the Cato podcast and the broad mission of Cato by visiting cato.org podcast sponsor and learn more of the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor.